Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center here at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest today is a good, good friend, and I'm just really pleased to have him in here with me, Tony Evans. Tony, thanks for being a part of our show today, and uh, we're glad to have you help us talk about a really um, race relations and, and our faith. And we've been through quite a recent spate of uh, activity here in the last several months. We've had the incidents at Ferguson. We've had the tension over uh, over uh, deaths in New York. We just recently, more recently, come through the OU experience with boys in the SAE fraternity, boys from Dallas even. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's been quite a few weeks. And our goal in this podcast is not to adjudicate those individual incidents, but to talk about the nerve that these events have struck. Um, both in our society at large and then the questions that it raises for the church and the way it ministers in this kind of a context to people. So we've asked you to come in and help us out. So I really appreciate well, you being here. I'm honored to be with you. It's an honor to call you a friend. And we thank uh, God for all your, your meaning to the, the faith these days because your voice is strategic. And so I'm delighted to be with you. Well, thanks, Tony. Uh, well, let's, let's uh, start off by, by asking the question this way. Why do you think these series of incidents have touched a nerve, and, and what is it that – that uh, I, 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 it's racial, so we've got to say it this way – what is it that, that oftentimes whites or Caucasians are slow to get about life in, in America for, for an African-American? Because for so many, um, Anglos in particular, uh, their experience is different. Mm-hmm. And they do not come to this issue with the same historical realities mm-hmm. and even baggage mm-hmm. that this issue brings to the table. Then they don't they they see the act or the event, mm-hmm. but not the historical backlog mm-hmm. that has uh, that that this event erupts. This this volcano is is there, mm-hmm. and it's it's the uh, the lava is 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 in there. So you're kind of simmering, and then all of yeah. a sudden you get then something that causes it go up. There's a match yeah. that lights it up. Yeah, and so what you see is a reaction that goes beyond the event. Mm-hmm. But when people see the event, and and if that's all you see, and that's yeah. all you react to, I can actually understand that reaction to that event. And I may even agree with your reaction to the event, right. but because I understand underneath it the volcanic lava that has been simmering there okay. of poverty, of not uh, equitable opportunity, uh-huh. of breakdown, and some of that, uh, to be quite honest, are faults within the community itself. Mm-hmm. But even those faults, unfortunately, are viewed through the prism of of uh, of injustice mm-hmm. and inequality and lack of uh, ec- equitable opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've experienced that myself. For example, uh, you know, when I first got into radio, um, I was told by stations across the country that it would be offensive to have a black speaker uh, on our radio station. It would offend too many of our listeners. Well, of course, hearing that, uh-huh. then, uh, uh, of course, uh, that creates a certain sensitivity. Right. Uh, and this was in the 80s I was hearing this. So okay. we're not even talking about Jim Crow. Right, right. We're talking about the 80s. So 
so that 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 creates a suspect mm-hmm. uh, in your mind. Sometimes you're conscious of it, sometimes you're not. Right. But it is it is there. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm the I was the fourth African American to attend Dallas Seminary. Right. A number of years before I came, I would not have been able to. That's come, exactly okay? right. Yeah. So people will often ask me, well, why aren't there? more African-Americans who have been trained in theological centers and theological training, well, you couldn't go. Yeah. You, 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 yeah. Were, you were barred out. Yeah. And so those create sensitivity. So when a match lights, uh-huh. it links now to this fuse uh-huh. that erupts into something bigger than the event itself. Interesting. So um, so let, let's let's probe that a little bit. Let's. I guess we're going to get down in the lava and get warm. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> what, is, what, it, what is it what is it about the African American experience in particular that uh, that is so different? I mean, I, I hear things. I'll tell you what I hear. Maybe this is a better way to go at the question. I hear things like you know we hear the word sometimes profiling. You know where where if you're an African American draw, driving through a certain part of town, you're more likely to get stopped. That kind of thing. Whereas if you're just an another white person driving through town, that's less likely to happen, that kind of – there's an inherent suspicion that comes with, with – uh, in, in certain segments of our population that come with being black. And you've, you not only see that, you feel that, you experience that in ways that, that Anglos, generally speaking, do not experience. Fair enough? Is that a Well, point? fair enough. I've experienced it personally. I've been pulled over, mm-hmm. and I've been asked, why are you in this neighborhood? Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, uh, the, the question mark was there merely because of the color of my skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you experience that, you experience Prof- one per group is looking at profiling as uh, you know you you are a certain color and your color does a certain amount of crimes and that's why we're profiling you. Mm-hmm. But we look at it often as no, it's I haven't committed any crime and it is only because of my color. Yeah. And so you again approaching it from a different perspective. Right. And so when when the, the when it becomes a statewide issue of profiling, the African American community and other minorities are seeing it as uh, I have done nothing for you you to relate to me that way other than color. Right. Therefore racism. Right. And so it gets written off that way and then you try to go through all the gyrations to try to bring calm to that legitimate frustration. Okay. So we so the the our society rightly or wrongly creates certain stereotypes and expectations that drive some of these reactions that we have both pro and con. And 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 we actually set ourselves up to, to, in some ways, ratchet up the tension because of the expectations that we have for one another that aren't necessarily, in one sense, they're not earned. They're not earned by the individual, but they're but they're there. And and you know, sometimes when we talk about these kinds of areas and we talk about institutional racism or structural racism or those kinds of things, and people say that category doesn't exist. You know, that's not real. But you say that to the African American community, and they'll go, "No, there's something to pay attention to there." Help me be more sensitive. Well, uh, when we talk about structures, we're talking about systems that have been uh, formally or informally set in place to either cancel or limit opportunities for non-whites. Mm-hmm. And in this, and in particular, uh, African-Americans, since the, uh, the brunt of this tends to go in that direction, given the history of our nation. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked about it on the school side. You can mm-hmm. see it in Christianity. Uh, I mean, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour. That's and, right. and I was, uh, uh, you know, I, when I was in seminary, 
we went to a Bible church, a very well-known, famous Bible church, and the deacons there let us know that uh, this was not a place for us to come. Hmm. And the and the subject on the marquee that particular Sunday was on love. I just, <laughs> I, I just found that real interesting. Uh, uh, but but it can be found in 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 work. It can be found in uh, how you jerryman districts mm-hmm. and uh, who you want to live there and who you don't want to live there. Yeah. And so you make it so maybe you can't legally. Uh, keep a group out, uh-huh. but you make it so uncomfortable or impossible uh-huh. for them to come in uh-huh. that it becomes a structural system mm-hmm. to bar you out. Now, mm-hmm. I've got to be fair. A lot has changed over the years. Yeah. An opportunity, there's a middle class black community now, but, and, and unfortunately, even within the black community, you will have uh, structures set in place to uh, bar out uh, those who you don't feel fit now your new opportunity and lifestyle. Uh-huh. And so you have a classism yeah. that becomes the child of racism. Interesting. And so it, it the, the dynamic yeah. can go, and that's what makes it so confusing uh-huh. and convoluted. Uh-huh. And so you get uh, so you get people complaining about Al Sharpton on one hand, uh-huh. but you've got this group that's very loyal to him because they haven't made it out yet. Right. And so they see the approach of the 60s as still a relevant strategy uh-huh. for changing things while you now have this middle class group that doesn't view that as a legitimate approach because they're not in that situation anymore. Oh, wow. So they don't need a Selma okay. because they're not in a Selma situation. Right. But there's a group that feels still feels they still need a Selma to get out of their situation. So it's a very convoluted situation that really only the church can solve. Yeah. Now, we'll, we'll, we're, we'll come to the solution here in a, in a second. We want to uh, help people kind of understand the nature of the problem particularly understand the nature and have at least some, I would say, empathy for the reaction of some as to why uh, some of this takes place. Um, let, me, let me ask you this. If, if you were to um, say to, to, uh, to people who are not African American uh, how they should think about these kinds of issues as they approach them and as they hear about them, what advice would you give us? Well, first of all, I, I look at everything through the four levels, four spheres of God's kingdom, the individual, the family, the church, and the broader society. Mm-hmm. So first of all, personally, mm-hmm. personally, I think you can improve on, on Martin Luther King's statement that you've got to begin judging people by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. So begin to relate to people not by an external that you see, but by the quality or lack thereof okay. that you see or right. don't see. Right. Because when you make that decision, it, it affects your eyesight. Right. You're looking for something different. Right. We've been taught to look for the external and make judgments based on that. Right. But if we can retrain that, uh-huh. and then if we can gather our families together and and help our children uh-huh. to begin looking at things that way. Mm-hmm. And when we see things that may be that may have been taught to be viewed as stereotypic mm-hmm. of a particular group of people, condemn the action and not the group okay. that that person is associated with out of which those actions came. Okay. So it becomes a retraining and reorientation. The pulpits have got to do that, too, to reorient people to look at for a different thing. Okay. Because what you look at it tends to be, and what you look for tends to be what you see. Yeah, yeah. And we've gotten so used to, through the media, through history, through bad experiences, mm-hmm. to see things one way, and that can go you know, either Both way ways. with the race, yep. Yep. And races, that we look for that, expect that, and react to that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a change. 
change of perspective. I remember the story of the uh, the uh, a boy who lost his contact lenses, and he was looking for 30 minutes on the floor, and he couldn't find it. And finally, uh, his mother, he told his mother, his mother got down there, and 30 seconds found the contact lenses. And he said, how could you find the contact lenses so fast? And she said, because we weren't looking for the same thing. And you were looking for contact lenses. I was looking for $150. So, <laughs> you know, it all depends on what you look for, because that will depend on what you see yeah. and how quick you see it. You know, uh, you've just reminded me in the search for con- of a story that goes back to my seminary days that, uh, that illustrates, I think, the nature of the problem. And that is what I used to play that believe 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 this or not, I used to play intramural basketball. And so, all right, all right. <laughs> and and uh, a little point guard. But anyway Jewish too. Yeah, so what a deal. That's side. exactly right. So so we're so we're playing basketball and we went out to a very well known uh, Bible church in near Garland, Reinhardt. We're playing in the gym, and we had uh, developed some relationships with some people located near the seminary, some African-Americans who we sometimes would take to go play pickup ball with us out at Reinhardt. And so this group of guys had all gone out. This is, I think it was my fourth year in seminary, and so we're talking 70s now. And, uh, um, and we got to playing, and as we were leaving, someone was missing something as we were leaving. And uh, they had they, – they didn't realize they had misplaced it. They thought it was gone. They thought someone had taken it. Now, guess what the first thought was in I'm that sure. group? I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. They, they thought the guys we brought had been – were responsible. And, and, and indirectly were, were suggesting this. And we were going, you know, no. And we stayed around. And eventually he found what he had misplaced, et cetera, and he realized it was all a mistake. But – that's the ins- that's the instinctive reaction that you deal with. I don't feel that as a I, you know on my end as a white person. I don't go there. I'm not in that place. I don't feel that. But I I apologize to those guys on the way back because because you know they were put in a position that made them very uncomfortable uh, as a result of this. And 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 what you were getting is almost uh, almost an instinctive reaction to the way the culture has has taught some of us to react and we have to almost fight against it to overcome it. Well, you do you do have to fight against it because you you are you in a lot of times swimming upstream against uh, background history, what your mother and daddy taught you, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what what your experiences have been. If you've had negative experiences with a minority and you're Anglo, mm-hmm. that's going to color that, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and, and and we also have to understand there's a real reality here, and that is. African Americans have to function in a white world. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, you, your your work mm-hmm. is going to typically be in that world. That's right. And you you have to. You don't have a choice. Right. You have to do business in that world. Right. So, but the Anglo world rarely has to function in an African American context. Yes. It does it because it chooses to. Right. African Americans do it because you have to. Right. Good and, difference. And that. That dynamic colors a lot because the Anglo's are much less acquainted yes. with my world. Yeah. I'm much more acquainted with their world yes. because I have to be. Right. And therefore, that colors the perspective and that colors who the power brokers are. Right. Because, you know, for my ministry to survive, I have to be half heavily dependent right. in our national ministry on stations that I don't own and have limited influence in. Right. And 
And for people, I need to engage them so in a way that doesn't so offend them that they're not willing to support me, right, right, right. even though I'm African-American, right, right. because that is the world in which we live. Right. So you're always, as an African-American, dancing a little bit. You're negotiating with the, lar- with the majority culture. You're, you're negotiating with the majority. Now, yeah. th- now for other African-Americans who are offended by that, or, uh, and, 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 and are, some are offended by yeah. that, and I yeah. get often called an Uncle Tom, well, yeah. he, well you know, the question is, do I want to stay where you want me to be, yeah. or do I want to stay where God has called me to be? And to do that, you do have to negotiate without compromising truth or principle. Yeah, you know. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Oh, it, it, it's interesting. Most, most, uh, most, or many Anglo's, I think, who live in our culture don't understand what it is to be in a minority culture. I will say there are pockets where this can happen, uh, and that is if if you, as my children did, my children went. To, we chose to put our children in public school. They were a minority at Hillcrest High School here in Dallas. I mean, they were there were like 170 languages. There was uh, there was only a, a 12 percent. I think it was 12 percent Anglo population in the school. Um, everyone else was either uh, from from uh, Latin America, or they were African American, or they were from another foreign country. Uh, it was it was a real mix. And my my kids got the experience. I was I actually thought it was a terrific experience for them of what it was like to be in a, in a minority, um, what it was like for everyone around you to be different. My, my equivalent of that experience is when we moved to Germany. We moved to Germany. I didn't have the language, at least not very well. I mean, I could, you know, order food and do some, but didn't really have the language. I would go to a PTA, PTA meeting where our kids were in schools in the German schools, and you know, be struggling to get the language. I knew what it was like to be a Hispanic in an American PTA meeting and not really know English. You know, I I experienced what that's like, and and there is a. Negotiating is also a word, but there's also a coping that you have to go through. There's a, there's adjustments about here. You have all these thoughts in your head and what you're thinking, but you're not able to express it and connect with people in the midst of it. That kind of thing, and and you realize you're on a different page and you're coming from a different place, and all that goes into that. There's a frustration with not being able to really show who you are in the midst of some of this absolutely you 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 have to adapt Mm -hmm. people people have to adapt all the time the different scenarios uh the the difference is that because african-americans have to be in the white world and therefore have to adapt right 
and whites don't have to be in the black world and therefore don't have to adapt. That's right. The adaption is not equal. That's right. <laughs> it's not an equitable adaption yeah, yeah. because it's not it's not the same situation. Right, right. And and so that's just the reality. Now you can fight about it, but that's the way it is. Yeah, yeah. And since that's the way it is, we need to learn spiritual truth that enables us to do that and not fight against that reality. That becomes a growth opportunity for both sides. Exactly. Okay. Well, we've we've kind of you know I really wanted to lay the table out to start off with it and try and communicate. Um, through this, how the African American experience, and really, if you, it, I, I could make the analogy, although there are also slightly different dynamics for Hispanics who are here. That sure. They have a similar kind of, they've got a similar kind of dance that they've got a, that they've got to work through in order, in order to do it. It's just hard when you're, when when the, if I can say it this way, when when the culture has been controlled by. For the most part, by by your race, mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to understand what it's like to not be in that box, to not be at, from that place, absolutely, and, and to function in the, in that reality. Okay, so we've kind of set that up. Let's let's talk a little bit about some of the actual logistical uh, ministry that you've been doing, because you've been very involved with the with uh, the community at Ferguson. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that history and how you got involved and what you've been doing? Well, um, I wrote a book called Oneness Embraced, uh, which confronts the race issue from a biblical standpoint. And when this issue, and we've been working with churches cross-racially, cross-culturally across the nation. Uh, to try to bring unity and harmony to various communities. And you've really been doing this from the very beginning, right? Yeah, yeah quite yeah, a long yeah, time. Yeah, and so yeah. when this book came out, One That's Embraced, and this issue in Ferguson came out, the church's pastors called me and asked me, would I come hmm. and lead them in a a plan for mm-hmm. unification in this, in this community that was now affecting the whole nation? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I went there, and I on, on Sunday night, I gave an address – a biblical case for unity mm-hmm. through the church mm-hmm. to affect the community. Mm-hmm. And then on Monday morning, I gave a strategy. Mm-hmm. My theme was we need more than a protest, we need a plan. Mm-hmm. And so we gave a three-point plan that mm-hmm. we take across the nation. One is to call a solemn assembly of the churches. Mm-hmm. A solemn assembly in Scripture was a sacred gathering mm-hmm. where where everything was falling apart and God needed to be reinvited into the midst of the chaos that his people were experiencing. Yep. And my my view from um, uh, Second, Second Chronicles 15, verses 3 to 6, where it says, In those days there was no true God, no teaching priest, no law. Citizen rose up against citizen. Nation rose up against nation. City rose up against city. And then it says, For God troubled them with every kind of distress. <laughs> so if God is your problem, only God is your solution. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. we say we've got to reinvite God back into this context. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we've got to demonstrate not only the unity of the invitation of God, but a unity of servicing the community. Right. And our big way of training churches to do that is through the adoption of public schools. Mm-hmm. So we say, let's adopt every public school in Ferguson, mm-hmm. and let's let a white church and a black church adopt the same school mm-hmm. so that we have unity through service, not through seminars. Mm-hmm. This won't come through through another another right, meeting. Right. This will come as we get to know each other. See, when you're in a war, you don't care about the color, class, or culture of the man fighting next to you as long as he's shooting in the same direction you are. Yeah, right. Okay. Right. Yeah. We're in a war to save our families, to save our communities. So let's let's shoot together and get to know each other as we serve somebody else. So there's unity of service, but you're blanketing the whole city if you're covering every public school. Right. And then that leads to point number three. Because you've in unity 
called God back together, God called back God back in terms of his presence in the community. Because you're serving together for the well-being of the community, now you speak with a common voice to the community because mm-hmm. you've earned that right mm-hmm. through God, through service, and now through the oneness of your voice. And so that gives a very simple way that it can be blank in the community. So when they invited me to do that and they got excited that this was a plan, not just a meeting, and so it looks like they're going to adopt that and we'll provide all the training and resources they need to do that as we're trying to do across the country as well. So what you're working to do is actually to build uh, build some relationships and actually demonstrate some some effort at reconciliation and working for the common good and mutual service, loving your neighbor. I mean, Absolutely. those kinds of things. Absolutely. That show that 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 show the people's commitment to one another. And your hope is that in those mixed relationships that emerge, that that uh, if I can say it this way, uh, color sheds it sh- sheds its skin, and you get to know the person. Absolutely, uh, Billy. I was with Billy Graham a number of years ago uh, at his home, and he was um, uh, very saddened about this fact. He said, "I'm very sad that black and white churches will come together for my crusade mm-hmm. for the event." Mm-hmm. But then they won't speak to each other again after the event is over Mm -hmm. because there was nothing that engaged them beyond the event. Evangelism was the goal. What I'm saying is uh, when Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, I've come to bring good news to the poor, Mm -hmm. that he's not just talking about spiritual poverty. That's right. He's talking about the realities of life. That's right. So why don't we work together to help the group that the Bible speaks of so much, Mm -hmm. the disenfranchised, the poor, the locked out, the left out. Why don't we get together and help that group? Now, you're bringing together the expertise of the minority community because they typically live among and work among that group. That's right. But you're also bringing a resource base, both human resources, economic resources mm-hmm. of people who will go across the sea, but not necessarily across the street, yeah. and you're uniting them toward a group that God wants to touch anyway. Right. So when you do that, you're affecting the, the common good mm-hmm. about th- something everybody's concerned about. Mm-hmm. You're recognizing the presence and expertise of a group who's there anyway and works among them. You're bringing something to the table, helping them to do an even stronger job, and now we're impacting lives that need to be impacted in a social Way. We're affecting the scope of the gospel and not just the message of the gospel. Yeah, and I think that sometimes people don't appreciate that one of the key goals of everything that God does through Jesus Christ is to actually affect reconciliation. Absolutely. And we tend to think of that reconciliation in personal terms. So we think about my being reconciled to the living God, but actually that reconciliation is designed to extend into the relationships that I have with other people. And there are two passages, and we might as well bring in a little bit of the Bible. In the Why not? That, that, that would make us consistent. Uh, there, there, there are two passages that really leap out at me, uh, maybe three, if I think about this. Keep going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. Once we start, we'll be, but that, that really do this in a powerful way. I, I think about the introduction of the ministry of John the Baptist and Luke, in which the statement is made, you know, he's going to turn Israel back to their God. But then in the next verse, it says, and he's going to turn the fathers back to the children, and he's going to turn the righteous to the you know to the lawbreakers. And so there's this there's this picture of a dual level of reconciliation. And then when you come to his actual ministry in Luke three, and you're in a passage that's unique to Luke, you don't have it in the other gospels about John the Baptist ministry. And they get asked, you know, John makes the exhortation, uh, make fruit worthy of repentance. 
Um, and, and we lose this word connection in the English because the verb, uh, the verb in Greek is the Greek verb poieo, but make fruit worthy of repentance. And then they ask, what shall we do in English? But it's the same verb in Greek. What shall we do? What shall we make? If we want to think, of, keep it that way. And then the three replies that John gives, none of them have to do with how the person is relating to God. Mm -hmm. All three of them have to do with how the person's relating to their neighbor. Mm -hmm. And normally when we think about the word repentance, we think about our relationship to God. Mm -hmm. But in this passage, repentance is translated in terms of how you're interacting with someone else. And in the midst of thinking about that, I thought, you know, that's actually the way the Ten Commandments are structured. The Ten Commandments are structured, one table is about how I relate to God, and the next table is about how I'm relating to others. That's right. And then boil that down, you bring that down to the Great Commandment. Great, great commandment. <laughs> okay, yeah, all right. right. All right, we're on a roll now. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You love your neighbor as yourself. And what that all is telling us is, is that God is about the business of reconciliation. You go to Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, another Absolutely. famous Jew and Gentile passage. The whole point of, of Jesus' death is to bring us into one new man and to take Jew and Gentile and make them able – two groups that racially hated one another. They tried to wipe uh, – you know, Gentiles tried to wipe the Jews out. Um, and and now Christianity says you're going to love that guy. Mm -hmm. You're going to love that guy who tried to wipe you out. And in Christ, there's a basis around which you can rally and come together and be one people. Well, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, another story. Let me just add okay. another story yeah. on here, and that's the one I love is is a John four, the mm -hmm. Samaritan woman. Yeah, absolutely. Because. Jesus meets her on common ground. He meets her Jacob's well. He, uh -huh. doesn't, he doesn't go to Sychar. He, yeah. he meets her Jacob's well. And she notices that he's a Jew. Mm -hmm. She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? Don't you know what we do in this neighborhood? Yeah, she didn't even yeah. mention the yeah. other issue, yeah. male and female. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Oh, no, that's, yeah. a, that's another program. Okay. <laughs> okay. But, but what, what, what caught my attention is that she noticed – while he could, he was visibly Jewish. Yeah. He wasn't acting like any other Jew she had ever met. Right. He was acting un-Jewish. Yeah. But this, so Jesus didn't change what his father made him. He just didn't let what he was made in his humanity interfere with what he, he should be the doing. Line and she was shocked. And she was shocked. Yeah. And that's what needs yeah. to happen. We need to shock some folk. When the mm -hmm. story ends, mm -hmm. he has trained his disciples. He said, don't come for, say, four months and then comes the harvest. Uh, these Samaritan men are coming right now, so let's get to work right now. So he trained his men. And then the story ends with it says, and he spent two days with the Samaritan men. Mm -hmm. Now, we start out with him not even going to the city. Mm -hmm. In one conversation, he's hanging out on the weekend. Mm -hmm. So what that means is when we, become, we, when we decide to become radical Christians, we can change the social temperature. But what a lot of Christians want to do is carve out this piece called my soul. Mm -hmm. Not deal with my humanity, right. save my soul for glory, mm. and have to wait till we get to heaven for you to interact with my person. Okay. <laughs> when Jesus was willing to start by drinking out of her cup, which right. opened up the door for the gospel, which led a whole town of males to himself. Okay, so obviously reconciliation is a major value. It's one of the ways, actually, that I think the church has an opportunity to demonstrate something that obviously the world struggles with. I mean, if there's a lesson of Ferguson, it is that people struggle. Um, in the midst of diversity to overcome 
their race and their background. It's not something that happens very naturally. And and you can go from city to city. I mean, you know, Dallas has its history and its stories. Ferguson has its history and its stories. New York City has its history and its stories. And and, and you you watch people naturally wrestle with this area. And when reconciliation actually happens, it is so countercultural, almost automatically, that it's it stands out. Absolutely. And that is why the church isn't standing out. That's right. Because it isn't, in a broad way, reconciling as the Bible would view it. And so we are dismissed. Mm -hmm. And that is unfortunate since our claim is we have the answer. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Join us next week for part two. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.